Wait, Rob, are you telling me that uh, Paul Simon was stealing sound from black people even before Graceland came out? Is that what you're trying to apply here? That's so true. And welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints, the show where friends, musicians, wannabe music critics get together to discuss a randomly selected album from Robert Armory's book, 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die. Each week we take a new album, we do a bit of a deep dive, we give our sort of musician's point of view on the album, and then ultimately we take a vote and decide if you should actually listen to this album before you die. This week, we're taking what I think is our first foray into the reggae genre, if I'm not mistaken. I think that's accurate. Well, we did that UB40 album, which, you know, clearly. Oh, yeah, that's right. Oh, dude, you totally stole my joke. (laughs) Okay. No, no, no. It's all right. It's all right. We can can cut that. We can cut that. Uh, (laughs) Let's hear the joke anyway. (laughs) What I was going to say was we're taking our first foray into reggae, and what better way to do that than with the undisputed kingpins of reggae music, UB40. I'm actually excited to do this album this week because probably with the exception of you, Adam, the rest of us have a bit of a history with this album dating back to our days in college. And I'm curious to see how our mindsets have shifted in the years, well, decades really, since that time, how our tastes have evolved for better or worse, and what our perceptions are of this album at this point in our lives. But before we jump in, If you're listening for the first time and you like what you hear, or if you're a fan of what we've been doing here, we would really appreciate it if you gave us a shout out online, either a a rating or review, tell one of your friends. It actually goes a long way in helping new people find the show in these various platforms. So we would certainly appreciate that. Smash that subscribe button, dude. Right. (laughs) Hey, well, it's the reggae episode, so you need that boop, 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 boop. <laughs> All right, let's jump right into the music and get a feel for this album. We'll play a quick clip from the opening track called Lively Up Yourself. You, you know, you haven't actually said the name of the album yet. I know someone probably clicked on it and it said it, but you you actually gave the wrong name of the album, and now we're going to play it. <laughs> <laughs> I can edit this one, too, for... Uh... <laughs> We are not listening to UB40, as you can probably imagine. We're listening to Natty Dread, an album by an obscure reggae outfit known as Bob Marley and the Wailers. <laughs> introduce the group today with a quick tweet length review of this album let's start with you phil 
Cool, yeah, so this is Phil. So uh, my tweet-length review would be uh, Bob Marley uh, successfully channels the sound of Mother Earth on his third, but oddly also first, release. And uh, what about you, Rob? Have you guys ever gotten really, really, I mean like really high? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Wait, what were we talking about again? <laughs> <laughs> Is that your review, Rob? <laughs> That's my review. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> All right, Tom, what you got? Uh, you know, I I had a little bit of a of a hard time writing my tweet length review of this album. I think part of it is that I I do have a history with it from college. Um, I'm just going to say like minor key reggae. It actually really does it for me. I I've come to not like the super happy three little birds reggae that super major key reggae, but minor key reggae. Yeah. It really kind of, it moves. It does it for me. Right on. What about you, Adam? Yeah, this is Adam. So for a genre that I had perhaps pigeonholed as samey, uh, I thought this album actually proved to be surprisingly diverse while still sticking in that that uh, reggae lane. I, you know, thinking about albums that we've reviewed in the past, Loretta Lynn, you know, falling into that country genre, I thought that album was way more samey. So yeah, I was pleasantly surprised uh, being my first time through with this album. Oh, and by the way, I had no idea how much Hammond would oh, yeah. be on this yeah, album yeah. so i think that also kind of was, was the hook that just kept me you know sweet, kept my ear to the sweet speaker the deal for you sweeten the deal as soon as you were beaten down by their constant upstrokes all of a sudden the hammond comes <laughs> in to wake you back up yes thank you mr hammond <laughs> well, actually can we start with just a description of what he's even going on in reggae because i have this is gonna sound weird to you guys perhaps but it just occurred to me for the first time that the rhythm guitar plays the role of the snare drum yeah yeah that's it i never thought of it that way before yeah i think so my understanding of this and um, by the way uh, just to give my tweet length review don't blame bob because your lame white friends like this it's pretty fucking bad. <laughs> yeah no I, I think that's very true i mean I, I, yeah adam you you sort of referenced like reggae sameness like this is more or less as good as it's going to get as far as reggae goes. Like, just because you like this doesn't mean you're going to enjoy it when you climb down the ladder, right? Right. right. Um, but, yeah, as far as, yeah, as far as. I mean, my first note on this was, well, it's definitely a reggae album. Um, <laughs> there is there's no mistake that this is very much conforming to the genre. But just because something conforms to the genre, maybe that's the thing that defined the genre. And everything else is just a cheap impersonation. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. I, I do think, Rob, you raise a pretty good question as far as like what's happening with reggae, what even is it? I, I am just going to throw this out there in case it's uh, news to anybody. I'm not an expert on reggae. I don't know a ton about the genre. I do know that I, I don't love reggae as a genre. I find it to be, frankly, kind of repetitive. And, I, you know, there's been a lot of uh, pretty bad reggae, I think, that's kind of come out since since Bob. I think musically speaking, the upstrokes on the offbeats is definitely a key characteristic. I think it's really subby bass with all the mids, all of the high frequencies basically scooped out. I actually have a funny story about that. I think most of you have heard this story. Maybe not you, Adam, but I was in a band about a decade ago in, in Oregon, and, and we opened up for this band called the Abyssinians, who were, they were not on Bob's level, but they, you know, people who are into reggae know who they are. They've been around for a while. 
And I happened to be in the position where I loaned my bass amp to their, to the Abyssinians bass player. And again, subby, loud, just all bass all day. So they do their sound check. They do a few songs. I leave the building for a few minutes. I come back. The entire place is quiet. All the lights are on and everyone's looking at me like, hey, your bass amp totally just shit the bed on stage with this oh, reggae band. Oh, no. <laughs> I may have even told the story on the podcast before. I can't quite remember. But, um, yes. Yeah, You'll so definitely we- tell it again if we get to all 1,001. <laughs> <laughs> Once we do Exodus, I'll forget that yeah. I told the story. But, yeah, so long story short, bass being a, a huge hallmark of this music. And it essentially originated in Jamaica out of – out of kind of ska music, a little bit of Calypso and something something called Mento, which I, I don't know a lot about, but it was... It's the fresh maker, man. Come on. That's where the harmonies are supposed to come in here, you guys. It doesn't matter what comes, fresh goes better with life. Sorry. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on just reggae in general or, or this album. I don't want to... There are, there are two things on this record that I think are super hip that I think of as fundamentally reggae. One of them, Rob sort of alluded to the guitar playing the role of a snare drum. I also always think of reggae as it has this kick drum on the three beat, which seems really weird. And sometimes it's like every other three beat. So it'll feel like it'll just insane periods of time will pass without a kick drum. And it'll come in, it'll be like big and bold. The other thing, and they definitely do it on Lively Up Yourself and a couple of other songs, and I think this is something that's cool in, in reggae in general, you'll get it with the bass and either the guitar or the bass and like a really clicky Hammond sound is, I'm talking airtight doubling. Where we'll have this cool bass line and then there will be something else doubling it, an octave up, and it's like real clicky, you know, it's like real mm-hmm. percussive, and it is air fucking tight it's insane to me uh and uh, those and are two crank things. up the percussion totally. on the ham and yeah, then you totally. get that yeah exactly and they're like you know it's like right in there i'm not an expert either but after alan referenced some of the other musical genres that this is a descendant of the other one that jumps out to me is gospel music with that combination of the organ and the backup singers the backup singers a great call there for sure yeah, I don't know how much those cultures, musical cultures, were sort of talking to each other or not, but that's that's the vibe I get a lot of times. So if you like that, that might be an entry point for some people. If they think that sounds cool, then I think there's a lot of that those elements in here. Well, I also think that, and Adam, you brought this up in the in the text thread, there being that kind of like Motown, then possibly being positioned as as a Motown band early on. Right. Yeah. Yeah. One of these songs is almost a cover of uh, one of their own songs from you know what a decade prior or something like that. Yeah, totally. So, you know, Bob and and essentially, uh, you know, Bunny Livingston, who, uh, a.k.a. Bunny Whaler, uh, if you're into reggae at all, you've probably heard that name before, were, were kind of friends growing up in uh, the Trenchtown neighborhood of, of Kingston, which if you've ever seen kind of pictures or video footage of, of Trenchtown, I mean, it's 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 abject poverty, it's right? A, it's, it's a shanty town. It's, it's a shanty just, town. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the corrugated aluminum roofs and yeah, that kind of stuff. People running a electrical cords between their houses to get power that kind of thing super tough environment to grow up in wow but some of the motown american r&b you know type of of sound temptations and like the drifters and, and groups like that were kind of making their way into whatever radios were available in you know like their 
early 60s when, when Bob was growing up. So I think as they adopted parts of Ska and parts of you know Calypso, which you know had already been around for a little bit, layering on some of the Motown influence with the vocals and the rhythm. And then later on, as you know, they got signed to uh, Island Records, there was a push to add you know, what we think of as just like normal rock elements, you know, more electric guitar, electric keyboards, things like that. So I think by the time this came out in 1974, the sound was really unlike anything else that was, was kind of happening out there. And it was definitely like an amalgamation of sorts, which I think there's a catch on. You, you, you've sort of like landed on guitar and amalgamation and not sounding like anything that's out there. So I just want to share this one detail that I really loved. Um, I learned this on like, a, you know, I mean, where do we learn everything, right? Like those VH1 behind the on music. On this podcast. Oh, yeah. Yeah, on yeah. this podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> on this podcast. Well, now that yes. they've canceled behind the music like 22 <laughs> years ago, we're filling that void, right? So I'm glad right, we're here. And I'm sure everyone's glad we're here, right? <laughs> so the first record, To Catch a Fire, I think it was released on Island Records. And basically, like, they loved it, but they were scared no one would buy it. They basically just thought no one, you know, it was too black. It was too, like, you know, unlike the other things that were on the radio at the time. So they brought it back to London to be remixed and sort of just, like, worked over uh, by, you know, the record company machine. And one of the things that they did when they were there, in addition to some keyboard overdubs, was this dude, Wayne Perkins, who was, like, a Muscle, muscle Shoals guy who'd played on, like, the Stones records and a bunch of that, like, southern rock stuff coming out of there. Put a bunch of guitar overdubs, uh, and you sort of hear that sound, and I'm actually really curious who it is, on songs like Lively Up Yourself. It's sort of almost like a country guitar. It's like a real noodly, uh, sort of like, a, like, Three Little Birds is, is, like, one of the key overdubs on the first record, To Catch a Fire. But it's interesting that even this like element that was added in the studio by the record company quickly found its way into the sound, right? They were like, oh no, that country, those mm. country licks sound dope. Like those are in now, right? And by the third record, like they're putting them in themselves, right? Cause they're oh, like, wow. no, that sounds That's dope, wild. right? Like, I, I remember watching a documentary about Catch a Fire with, um, and like the time that they went to London to do those sort of overdubs. And yeah. I, it has stuck with me for so long. There was this British keyboard player, organ player, who was talking about trying to do some of those overdubs and keep, like basically having Bob Marley and other members of the band explain to him what they wanted and they like we want like syncopated hits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the guy starts doing like the most like like completely non-swing, just like boom, 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 boom. Like and they're like, dog. no, 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 <laughs> it's not like this. It's like this. It's, and he's just like. The way they described it was so primitive, but, you know, it, and I was like, you fucking dick. Like, yeah. you British assholes. Which, by the way, you want to talk about why there was no lights in fucking Kingston? It's because they, why were, would that they were a be? British colony, and the British yeah. were notoriously terrible about turning their colonies into resource extraction centers. Basically like, hey, we got this colony. You got a bunch of resources. Instead of making it so that you can take those resources and make your own stuff and sell them. We make it so that we can take the resources, make stuff and sell it back to you so we can extract the maximum amount of revenue out of you. I think it's important to frame Bob Marley, since he mentioned colonialization as the revolutionary that he was, meaning that that context may be lost to the modern listener, how political 
and he was yeah, in those times, right? And how dangerous he kind of was. They got independent from Britain in 1962. Yeah. So it's not ancient history. Well, this and it's also pretty just connected happened. to Bob's story himself because I didn't actually realize this until doing the research for this week. But And maybe this is just a miss on my part, but like I didn't realize he was biracial, right? So his mm-hmm. mom was was a black woman from Jamaica and his and his father was a, a white man from England who was essentially there to be like a caretaker or you know to kind of oversee the plantations. He was uh, oh, I believe wow. they call a crazy bald head. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know what they called him, but like either way, he wasn't around very much as but you no, that, can probably guess. That was like the term that there's that, that song you're going to chase those crazy bald head bald heads all over town like it's basically talking about the white people that own all the land and like we're gonna get them the hell out of here i thought that just referred to anyone who didn't follow rastafarianism and grow their hair long i'm pretty sure it meant like middle-aged white guys but i could be wrong because i was again, waiting for you tom to try to imitate the bird caw at the beginning of that song oh yeah <laughs> yeah you're gonna get lots of really offensive jamaican accents out of me during this yeah episode. yeah Trying to see how quickly we can get canceled. <laughs> right. Sorry, you were saying, Alan. No, well, so I think that if you were living in Jamaica, especially Trenchtown, and you were mixed race, you weren't accepted by, you know, the black folks. You weren't accepted by the white folks, certainly. So he kind of grew up with this, you know, sort of seriousness that I think, like, belies the, the chill nature of his music. Like, I think most people associate Bob with, like, oh, yeah, man. Hey, it's a like, party. Yeah, and, yeah and let's go to the beach and party. Yeah. Totally, but he grew up you know, very conscious of the, the political situation going on. And Rob, to your point, his music was very much like in that Rage Against the Machine kind of vein, not as angry, obviously, but it was very much about oppression, you know, empowerment, and kind of living through a lot of the the political strife that was happening. I mean, he even It's had funny a- you say that because that's actually the other thing I found myself listening to during this. I found myself oddly pulled into Evil Empire as the counterpoint to this and feeling like, oh yeah, I mean, maybe I didn't, maybe I didn't take Zach Taylor Roach seriously enough. I, I, I got to tell you, <laughs> one of the things that annoys me about reggae, and it's not the fault of reggae particularly, but I feel like it gets the, it gets this rep as being basically like Jimmy Buffett done by black people. Right. It's just kind of party music and who gives a shit and like everything's cool, man. We're just going to dance and we got the beach and like there are some Smoke songs like that. Like, yeah, totally. Right. There are some songs like that. But the songs that I that I actually really like are the reggae songs that are like talking about how fucked up the situation is. Yeah. And, you know, we're super poor and we're overcoming that. And I can still dance even mm-hmm. though I'm hungry. But. It's still pretty fucked up. So let's acknowledge that first. It's just like how Rage rocks, but it's got a message. No, I totally agree. That's where this album shines, too, is on the, the songs that actually have some content in them, so to speak. Yeah. My my number one note on this album is it reminded me how much I hate the song Jammin'. Um, I hate that song so much. And it constantly came up after i was done this album when spotify would be like yo like listen that. next you want to listen to jamming i'm like i do not want to listen to jamming at all that song you. sucks so bad well can we just say it's hard to you can't talk about bob marley without talking about the greatest hits compilation legend which is easily i think the most the best-selling reggae album of all time and something that we've all want to puke pretty much every time any it's got that like cover where he's like 
You know, I know right, no one right. on the radio can see me, but everybody else can. And he's like, he's got that. You know? Yeah. That every white kid with dreads had that poster in there uh-huh. on the bedroom wall. <laughs> Yeah. Well, that's okay. So that's the other thing back to revolutionary Bob is that he's kind of like a Che Guevara type character in that he's been totally commercialized and commoditized into these blacklight posters when in fact at the time, you know, there there's a lot of conspiracy theories about the fact that the CIA may have tried to assassinate him. He was definitely deeply involved in the political struggles of and he was there was an assassination attempt in Jamaica and he was just like a dangerous character, and now he's been almost Disneyified. Yeah, right. It's what they say about Martin Luther King, right? He's turned into this like you know black teddy bear figure of like, oh, he was all about peace and love. It's like he was a revolutionary. He talked about how the underclass is getting fucked over, and the Vietnam War is ridiculous, and automation is going to take away the jobs and consolidate power into the hands of the elite. And can't say the man was wrong but they, they both did they both did believe in peace and and gandhi too and yet isn't that i mean based on what happened to all those people isn't that kind of the most radical concept out there <laughs> by the way just, i you say gandhi too and i immediately i just recently rewatched uhf, UHF. and yeah <laughs> gandhi too <laughs> i'll have a steak, a steak. medium rare <laughs> yeah. so fantastic so fantastic sorry this is my weird al rant for the album for the record, if you Google Gandhi 2, you get a link to the trailer, essentially. Like, it's presented by YouTube. Yeah, it's, a, yeah. it's a real movie. That's <laughs> fantastic. Everybody rewatch UHF. It's a goddamn masterpiece. It's so good. But do it after you listen to this podcast. <laughs> yeah. If you're still listening. Don't do it now. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's jump back into the opening track from this album, do a little bit of a deeper dive on the song Lively Up Yourself. Like you never did before. Yeah. Dip so you dip so. Dip through my door. You come so you come so. Again, I feel like this is a song where we've all heard it so many times that it's really hard to listen to it with a fresh set of ears. So I'm kind of curious what you have there. Actually, I I disagree somewhat. I mean, I've definitely heard the song a bunch of times. But one of the things that helps this album generally is the fact that I think save one, and it's even a different version, none of these songs are on aforementioned legend. So for the most part, they oh, have not been really? completely right. played I out. I swore this one and No Woman, No Cry would have been on there. No Woman, No Cry, the live version is, and we'll get to version. that. I have much I want to say about that. But Lively Up Yourself, yeah. while technically a Bob Marley hit, or could be considered as such, is not on it. And so I feel, one of the things I feel is that this is approximately in the category of the Let's Kick Back and Dance dance our cares away reggae songs of which jamming could also be considered a part of that same genre but it's probably the best version of of it 
my note on this is it's it's party music without being disposable. I feel like so much of party music is like you wouldn't listen to it in any other context. This song is actually really good. I you know there's this lockstep sense about it where everything is exactly in its place, but. When you got a singer like Bob Marley doing the kind of scatting and, you know, all the different variations on the melody and stuff that he does, it works really well. And it it opens the song up a lot. I I didn't feel as I thought it was going to feel more hemmed in by this song because it is very lockstep. But I was I was actually pretty pleasantly surprised at how freeing it was with that sort of vocal. Well, can we let's talk about that for a second. One, I want to know how much it rides on the strength of the title. I think it's a solid title. It's a cool little phrase. I get it's what they're trying to say. It's a good concept, too. It's a good concept, exactly. And unlike, say, Jammin', it hasn't sort of been co-opted by other ideas. You know what I mean? Maybe Jammin' was a cool thing to say when he wrote that song. Unclear. But you mentioned the live feel of the vocals, which to me is in a direct counterpoint to how the rest of the production feels, which is super close-miked and Air not t- at all like Air a live t- band. Mm-hmm. So I do feel I know we said this about a lot of records, but I do feel like seeing this live would have been like a hundred times better, just automatically. Well, I think it's no surprise that the live album came out like less than a year after this, or maybe it was around a year, and it was a total attempt to like capitalize on their live show because that really was their bread and butter. But I think it's also worth mentioning to your point about this feeling a little bit, I mean, certainly more produced than their earlier stuff, but this was actually the first album they did without Peter Tosh and Bunny Whaler, who the three of them were, were essentially like the, they were the Whalers and, you know, they had a a few different names, but you know, as they were kind of coming up, the other two didn't want to do, they didn't want to tour. They kind of just wanted to go back to Jamaica and, and do their own kind of solo Thing. And so I think the sound of this, it had a different kind of flavor than some of their other stuff. They brought in the, the I3, which is sort of the, the three person, uh, you know, yeah. female vocals and stuff like that. So definitely a different flavor. One of the background vocalists is his wife, right? Correct. Which he's notorious for having had as many as 12 kids from several different wives. Some of them happened while Rita Marley was still in the band and, you know, I don't know how that all worked, but, uh, Amen. but yeah. Yeah. Them belly full, but they hungry, dude. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I want to, I want to touch on the live show. I actually saw the whalers live when I was 21. I went to a beachside bar in New Jersey at the Jersey shore. And, uh, I went begrudgingly thinking that I was going to hate this entire experience. They dominated. They were so damn good. It was one of the better shows I've ever seen. They had that crowd eating out of the uh, eating out of their hands the entire time. It was masterful. And I don't know how many original members there were, but they had three backup females singing. They had all the hallmark all the hallmarks of what you would expect to see from a whaler show. And that's definitely the way to experience this music on a beach live. It was it was pretty damn killer. Yeah. Did they have one of various Bob Marley because various. Bob Marley offspring are it was not their own Ziggy bands, or, right? Yeah, it wasn't Ziggy or any other. Uh, it was just the Whalers. That's what I it, was, it was. So, but so was, meaning yeah, they didn't have a the lead singer like covering the Bob parts. No, they did. They did, but it wasn't oh. a Bob Marley um, descendant. I already blew my load on this song. It has the cool. <laughs> it has the cool uh, kick drum on three. 
And it's got the airtight bass and guitar. It also has the sort of noodly guitar panned right. Uh, and there, there's another style of lead guitar that like is endemic, I think, to Bob Marley's sound. We'll hear that on No Woman, No Cry. But that country thing is like a weird add, production add-on that quickly found a home in the mm. sound overall. If, if this is a template for what other fun, love, and reggae songs are like, then I'm good with it on that level. I don't think it's one of the better songs on the album, though, because it doesn't really have a lot of lyrical content or lyrical meaning in my mind behind it. He does that cool yodel thing that I appreciate, and he doesn't do it a lot. I'm looking at you, Lenny Kravitz, who had one <laughs> one vocal trick that he used nine times on every song on that debut album. Uh, um, Marley hits it a couple times in the album, and it's cool when he does it. You know, it's like a little little treat that he throws in there for you, which I thought was cool. This also established just how percussive the Hammond organ can be as a percussive instrument. So. People who listen to the to the show know that I love Hammond organs. Hammond organs are very cool because they don't actually start generating notes and tone until you leave your fingers on the keys for just a little bit. So if you just smack the keys, you just get a you get this this very percussive noise essentially. It's not even a note yet, and you hear that all throughout this album and also this song where it's doubling that but it's a different different flavor than a guitar hitting dead notes so it's a very cool very cool trick there. I, there. I the word percussive really resonates i i really love the way the guitar specifically also it's just it's a percussive instrument in this context just straight up you know and it's very hip especially when it's done well like this right mm -hmm. i think we might have talked about this on the count basie album where pre like really good guitar amplification they weren't doing lead lines on the guitar. They oh, were doing yeah, right. just rhythmic strumming, and it was a percussive instrument. So I wonder how much like that early jazz guitar, pre any kind of like guitar soloing type of like like Django Reinhardt. Yeah, style. yeah, yeah. But um, I wonder how much that influenced that sort of style of playing. It's just like it's not about it's about chords, and it's about like it's about just like keeping time on those chords, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I've always had an affinity for this song just because this is one of the first bass lines I ever learned. And it was also one oh, of the nice. first that it's so simple. But as you're playing it, especially if you're a new player, the amount of space that he leaves in between playing, it feels like an eternity. But it serves the song so well. And so I think I happen to think reggae bass, even though it's very simple, if you really want to develop your kind of rhythmic foundation and feel like reggae is a great way to to do that to kind of play along an appreciation of air yeah taste right basically. of not mm -hmm. 16th notes the entire time right what's that uh aston barrett uh, aston the bass player that's right he he has the best job in the band like being the bass player if you're in a reggae band and you're not the bass player you don't have the best job i'm sorry like <laughs> bass player i think drum, band, drums but... is up there too but hey. i bet yeah. they're all having a nice time yeah. <laughs> well, that, well, okay. That said, is there any picked bass on this record? Because some of that sounded pretty tight. I don't know if that's just the di or what 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 it's going through the close hard mic. fingers, dude. His fingers are so yeah. hard. I think it's I think it's the you get calluses. the Victor and calluses going on where you can like you know put out cigars in your fingertips. Yeah, I think that's I think it's technique. I, I don't know. I'd be surprised if there was a pick on here, but um, you know there have been worse abuses. I wanted to comment that I 
have not listened to this song in a long time. I have listened to the MMW version of this song that they do on It's a Jungle in Here. That also, you know, Thelonious Monk tie and the Bemsha Swing, Lively Up Yourself. I assumed the horns were going to be way more prevalent on this song. And they really hold back on the horns and they're super tasteful when they bring them in. It is not slathered all out the entire song, which yeah, I thought it was right. going to be, but they just kind of do that. On the horns. And it makes it really powerful. It's like, I thought it was very, very tasteful. And uh, it was a pleasant surprise or like, I guess a reappreciation of the perfect placement of those horns. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a tasty song, you know, smart musicianship, a lot, lot of good choices for sure. Speaking of, I guess this is probably Bob's or the Whalers most well-known song. I don't think it's the number one most played on Spotify necessarily, but I think this is probably their most well-known song, which is No Woman, No Cry. First of all, I love this melody. I've always had an affinity for this song. It's the one, maybe there's two songs from Legend that I'll abide by you playing in my presence. This is one <laughs> of them. Buffalo and soldier. No, oh, pass. Okay. Hard pass. That one. I was thinking is of Redemption Song. Is it Get Up, Stand song. Up? Oh, no. Redemption Song. <laughs> but definitely this one. Anyway, and it's because, I'll admit, I'm biased. I love wistfulness as a songwriting topic. But I have a couple questions about this that I, I want to... I want people to comment on one is the fact that the more famous version is the live version, which is slowed way down and just makes the song so much better. I mean, it's a classic example of how a live version trumps the studio version that we just listened to. And I went ahead and beat tapped it out. It goes from like BPM a hundred down to like BPM 78. I
I'm really curious, like, why they made that decision to record it so up-tempo in the studio. But then, did you guys notice, does it sound like this might be, the tape is sped up a little bit? Like, even his vocal sounds a like little... Exactly. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. my just note. Pinch. Just a pinch. Accelerated, yeah. 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 It feels sped up. Uh, I... It, and and it, it comes across as thin. And I don't think of Bob Marley's voice as being thin. I think of him as actually having a pretty powerful voice. Well, also, I think the piano is... Whatever keyboard is being used in the album version just sounds there's something like really cheesy about it like i can't believe you guys haven't mentioned the drum machine yeah that's lame yeah yeah i yeah i was gonna worry out on this drum machine because i'm i'm torn it's so bad i'm un, i'm come confused maybe it's good how, how can you not compare the song to the much superior it's life during wartime is another example of this phenomenon where the studio version you're like yeah it's a good song but they made it so much better in the live version on stop making sense that it's hard to really take the studio version seriously anymore you get to that live version you slow that thing down you got a whole crowd of people singing along you're in whiter shade of pale territory which is another it's got favorite that thick bass drum that seems to come out of nowhere so oh, it's let me ask awesome. is that a drum machine are you sure that's a drum machine? Because I know that there's there is a the percussionist, right? Um, I think so, especially Carlton if you listen Barry, at the right? very beginning. No doubt, I do think there's some. I mean, I I prove me wrong, but I I put my money on a drum machine. Well, I read that it was a drum machine. You but read that the, could okay. be apocryphal. That's fine. I I did not read that, and I actually have a question on a later song of like, if is this a drum machine? And if it's not a drum machine, so many drum machines try to ape this sound and like get that like oh whatever that percussive hit was we're gonna we're gonna mix that sound in forever. Yeah, yeah, totally. According to Wikipedia, it is a drum machine, but I sounds like that's been corroborated enough. Here. Okay. To me, like thinking back on it now, yes, it's it's clearly a drum machine, but it I didn't really notice it when I listened to it only because I was so thrown by the fact that the live version is has been cemented in my brain as like the definitive version it's so much better i I don't i don't know what the decision was to to slow it down if that was the original intention but well it's just like uh they recorded it the week that they discovered cocaine and then they're like no weed (laughs) is way better (laughs) it just went back to that (laughs) like slowed it way down well i think and i thought this is maybe a phenomenon that we could talk about that we all know from being in bands so band times bands sometimes record first and then start playing a live arrangement and let the audience kind of tell them what works about the song and that in turn changes the song which being a band member that kind of sucks sometimes because you then you look back on the thing you recorded and you go damn like the songs progressed so much since we recorded it I, I just i just wonder if it's that because this is much more swaying the live version is like a religious experience it's at that tempo and this is intending to be this little dance pop number i don't know so i'll, I'll be the odd man out here so this song borders on sweet home alabama territory for me because again a decade in a cover band this song i've done this song oh my god i don't know 1200 times did you ever do the like upbeat version well no and this is the first time i've ever actually heard it so i found this one refreshing because part of me can't stand the live version because that's all i ever heard uh force-fed it and then also there, there's part of me that almost felt looking back in in retrospect it just felt very disingenuous like should i even be doing this song again because there i I think alan you sent out an onion article about like this song being the anthem for 
rich white frat boys uh and it's all the crowds was nothing but drunk college kids all like singing along and you're like oh god you I should kinda... definitely not have been doing this song by the way yeah, what's yeah. the <laughs> right <laughs> definitely not but i bet totally you it crushed agreed. i bet you everyone loved it it crushed Clear and everybody sang it yeah so that's so not that this song is this version is better but i actually found this refreshing considering that i had only ever heard the live version and then performed that version of the live version you know a thousand times or something so i i found this was the breath of fresh air from what i was used to i know we're focused on the thing we're not even listening to which is the live version of this song but one tidbit that i never knew (laughs) that i found this week is that i always assumed that live version that famous live version was recorded like at a soccer stadium in jamaica it's from a 2000 seat theater in london yeah 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 yeah. i I saw that really yeah Yeah. for it being you know what i mean well i mean you know, Jamaica was a British colony for a while, so they I'm sure there was a Jamaican di- diaspora in London. So maybe it wasn't a bunch of, you know, poorly, uh, poor oral hygiene, uh, you know, affiliated uh, white guys in the stadium. But or Prob- the, prob- the, probably yeah. correct. Well, actually, side note, have you guys watched Top Boy on Netflix? It's about Jamaican in London drug dealers and they use tons of Jamaican slang definitely requiring the subtitles it's great <laughs> alright fair enough I'd love to pick up some fresh slang I don't listen right. to enough new music and therefore I definitely don't have hip slang <laughs> did anybody notice on this song like at the very end as they're kind of getting to the post vocal fade out there are these backup vocals that are definitely men that come in just kind of doing like a Hum, they're just hum, hitting the root. Yeah, I don't think so. yep. right around three twenty, they start just kind of humming the root note of the chord. Very odd. It was cool. I liked it. I I thought it was. Uh, it had a little bit of the. Uh, you know, the I will thing going on where the bass line is just Paul McCartney going boom, 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 like with his voice and not actually playing mm-hmm. on the bass. It had a little bit of that bass feel to it, you know? They do a lot with vocals that I think were sort of under under the radar. And, you know, the, the initial incarnation of the Whalers when it was that trio was actually a vocal group. It wasn't till a few years later that, that Bob even took on, you know, playing guitar in the band. So... I think their like sense of vocal and using that as an inch, like to kind of weaponize that as an instrument in a good way is a little bit understated on, on some of this stuff. So I think that's a good point. My, my favorite fact about the song, which I didn't know until recently was if you look at the songwriting credits of this album, so Bob has basically all the songwriting credits, except for this song, it's Bob and someone named Vincent Ford. And I was like, who the hell is this guy? It turns out that, and I think Bob did this from time to time, was he would give songwriting credits to people in, you know, so this guy ran a soup kitchen in, in Trenchtown. And his, his idea was if I give this guy a songwriting credit, he'll be able to keep this thing going like in perpetuity. I don't think he realized it would span this long, but he he definitely was one of the guy kind of guys that like walked the talk. And yes, he bought a mansion wow. in Kingston, but he basically had all his friends living in there playing music so i thought that was kind of cool well that is cool i'm not gonna 
I'm going to somewhat shit on your point here. I, I definitely got the impression, <laughs> similar impression, that Bob Marley did walk the walk. It sounded like that was the guy who had helped him when he was a young, poor kid, and he wanted to pay it back to some extent. But it was also somewhat about a, some kind of contract dispute with his publishing company, where he wanted to like hide, like kind of hide some royalties or deny them some royalties that they would have otherwise gotten. That's what I read. That's possible. I, I don't. I, I don't know. Then I think there was a protracted legal battle to get his name back on it later. Yeah, because he also he gave writing credit to. Uh, he wrote apparently wrote every song on the album, but if you look at like the official writing credits, like you know Natty Dread was Rita Marley and Alan Cole have like the official writing credits, but like they didn't write that song. It was Bob, and Bob was basically like, I I don't want that old record company to get any of my money, and good for him. Honestly, very inventive way to get around it. He he sent all the money to a company called Taxi Evasion. Yeah, it was like a taxi company, yes. a Taxi Evasion. Sorry, oh Jesus, that's terrible. <laughs> Your kids are not well, on this podcast, yeah. Adam. Well, we right. do not need dad jokes. Yeah. <laughs> I I just want to mention because I I talked about the dude on the previous track. What was his name? Like White Whitey, uh, Wayne Perkins. White Whitey. Yeah, Wayne Perkins plays. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, Wayne Perkins plays like those country style licks that you hear on like Lively Up Yourself and like you'll hear it more on Catch a Fire. The the straight up guitar player in the band though, like that's the like the no woman no cry sound. Um and I just think it's interesting because there are these two really different sounds that I think really expand the sort of overall Marley vibe. And one of them is sort of like endemic and the other just has this other really weird root. Uh, and, and I guess Alabama, is that where Muscle Shoals is? Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to look this dude's name up, but I couldn't find it fast enough, but I'm just trying to make sure we give credit where credit's due. We'll just go with Whitey White. That's no, 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 no. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't matter because we know Delaware's waiting in the wings. So anything you say at this point is no one has just ever worthless. said this. What was Bob Marley's favorite cheesesteak place? Ooh. <laughs> Well, there probably weren't very many of them in Delaware at the time. Guys, I'd like to let you know that the, I'd like to, unfortunately, I'm going to let you all down. The lead guitar player in the Whaler's name is Al Anderson. So it's like, which guy is the white guy, Al Anderson or Wayne Perkins? And which one's the Jamaican? (laughs) Okay. The Delaware connection. I This is not going to be of interest to most people on this podcast, but we are all Delawareans, so it must be said. Bob Marley lived in Delaware on and off for two years. His, so his mom moved to Wilmington, and he followed her a couple years later after the Whalers had kind of kicked around Jamaica for a while. We're having some success, but they were, they were still broke and really had no agency or, or autonomy to really do much, uh, you know, to, to like enrich themselves financially. So he moved to Delaware and worked a series of forklift jobs at Chrysler and worked at, you know, DuPont as like a lab assistant. But he did all this in order to simply raise enough money so that when he returned to Jamaica, he could actually, you know, start his own, you know, small quasi kind of record company. So I think that dynamic of feeling like you're being, you know, essentially like robbed or that you're not being given your full due, it seems like it's always been a kind of constant throughout their musical career. Well, he was in a a version of political exile from Jamaica or self-imposed political exile because he left right after he was, someone attempted to assassinate him. Like guys broke into his house and shot his manager and uh, shot his wife. 
and I don't think any of them died, and he didn't die, but he got shot in the arm. And it was leading up to this sort of politically charged concert that he did. There's there's a documentary about it on Netflix currently. And right after the concert, he was even uh, struggling with whether or not he should even play the concert because he was afraid he was going to be killed, you know? But basically, he left Jamaica right after the concert and didn't want to go back for years. Do you know what because year it was that too was? Dangerous. Well, that he that went was to London at that point. I think. I think it's seventy six. Yeah, what I think is so crazy about Bob Marley living in Delaware is that he lived here in like almost in anonymity, right? Like, well, he he wasn't even known outside Jamaica, so like I don't even think anyone in in Europe knew who he was at that point. But when did he blow up? Like, I don't. This this is maybe the part it's I don't know. Pre Eric Clapton covering sure uh, pre Clapton. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I will uh, give Eric Clapton some props here in that whoa, whoa, whoa. his cover of i shot the sheriff did bring a ton of visibility to bob marley and the whalers in europe so they were kind of coming up around that point but that cover did bring a, a lot more kind of visibility and i it really was probably like when the live album came out in 75 which was like a year after natty dread when more of the international kind of acclaim sort of came to to bear wait wasn't uh when was uh, uh 461 is the 76 that 461 ocean no i think out? i think that i shot the sheriff at least the single came out right around the same time this album came out it helped boost album sales so this kind of was a hit but he still didn't really have a hit song i think until the no woman no cry live version which was still a year away or something I, 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 sorry i hit song outside of jamaica that is he was a celebrity in jamaica Am, am I to believe that the songs on Exodus were written in Wilmington, Delaware? No, 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 no. The Wilmington thing was in like the late 60s. That was like 66. Oh, I thought you said 76. I'm like, that's what I'm not understanding at all. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? How'd this well, dude show up in Wilmington, Delaware in yeah. 1976? Listen, and just... I can understand writing Exodus being like, I want to get the hell out of here. <laughs> that's my mistake. I, I didn't realize the Delaware thing was before all this. Yeah, yeah, it was in the 60s. That makes more sense. So moving on, let's go to the the next song, which uh, is formally called "Them Belly Full But We Hungry." Cost of living gets so high Rich and poor they start a cry 
This is the standout song. This is the best song on the album, in my opinion. It is opinion. the best on the album. Yeah. I think it, it reads to me also as the most memorable, revisiting this album now, so many years later. This These are the melodies from this song that were kind of in my head the deepest. I really It really resonates what he's trying to say as a rebellion, song of rebellion or song of revolution. I mean, this stuff is still relevant today, I think. It's great. I really dug, first of all, the backups on this are at the star of the of the song. The fact that they come in with that sort of just like doubling the da-na-na-na, da-na-na-na-na. But that, yep. there is in the second verse, they do, I think this might be like my favorite group backup of all time, where they just do the da-da-da-da-da-da-da over it and then they bust in the oh what a tribulation like harmony <laughs> it's so good it's so good so high, for cry. now the weak must get strong they say oh what a tribulation then belly full but and, and also i will point out this is the shortest song in the album it's the tightest song. It feels tight. It feels very appropriate in length because there's not a ton of content in the lyrics. It's a lot of rep- repetition, but it's... I didn't want to sound like an idiot and say somebody explained to me the lyrics. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at them right now. Says uh, I kind of get it, but... Them belly full, but they hungry. A hungry man is an angry man. The rain it fall, but the, the dirt is tough. The pot it cooks, but the food's not enough. Basically, it's like we don't have enough food... Even though you know we can't grow enough food, it's it's basically about like being in the oppressed underclass because at the time Jamaica was one of those very polarized economies where it was an extraction economy and there were the people who invested right. in so their bellies export. are full and we're hungry. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, yeah, and that's screwed up. Well, well, li- there was literal literal starvation was the problem, but I think it has a layer beyond that, which says just solving that problem isn't enough. Now we also want rights, voting and otherwise. Yeah. And I, I always love the, it's, I feel like it's wry, the delivery of like, you know, forget your troubles and dance, forget your weakness and dance, forget your sickness and dance. It's all these like, yeah, you're telling me to just like, oh, everything's great. We live on this island. Just don't worry about it and dance. But no, like we're starving. And also, yeah, we have no rights. We have no power. We have, yeah. This is the one that stuck stuck with me the most. Yeah, it's kind of like a fight song to tell people to keep fighting. Like, yeah, we want mm-hmm. our independence, but there's still a long way to go. We got to keep marching. Don't get complacent. And this is one where they really, they really hit that minor key vibe, that minor key reggae vibe. It just For sure. it stands out very, very prominently to me on this one. And actually, Rob and I in the chop days post, you know, Phil, you leaving and John leaving, we got another guitar player. We got another drummer. We tried to cover this song at one point. Really? Entirely. You, you don't remember this? No, I don't. Um, we tried it for one practice. You guys want to edit this part out? <laughs> no, no. We don't want to edit this part out. It's great. Well, it was entirely in service of the fact that there's that whole, like, we're going to chuck to jump music chucking, and we're going to say we're going to chop to jump music chopping. <laughs> I, um, I honestly but, like, have no memory of this. Immediately, Rob, immediately, it was like, oh, I can't do this song without doing a very offensive Jamaican accent, so I'm just going <laughs> to, we have to abandon this, like, there are definitely no recordings of it. It was it was bad from moment one, from conception to execution. It was terrible. <laughs> it is it is funny you know we've all had those moments right where like you try something to practice and it's garbage and you all know immediately but it's also interesting what sticks with you like the ones you do and don't forget you know 
Alan, Alan, I don't know if you were there for this. I won't mention our friend's name, but we once tried uh, 6th Avenue Heartache by the Wallflowers for like a charity event as part of like a 90s situation. Someone we play music with frequently who's very talented. We played the song. And it was, as soon as it was over, everybody in the band looked around and was like, cool, we're definitely not going to do that because you can't play slide guitar. And he was like, <laughs> I thought it sounded great. And we were like, what are you talking about? <laughs> this doesn't make any sense. You it's like, that's the only thing people are going to listen to. And if that <laughs> isn't good, then what the fuck are we doing? No, I actually remember you talking about that because I was like, oh, that's a perfect song. That's right in your range. That like, because you were going to sing that song. Phil. Yeah, like, yeah, that's that's like, the nah. perfect song. I was for like, no, nah, it wasn't going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, I definitely remember that vividly. Although we could have pulled that off more easily than former members of the CHOP doing. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, 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 sure. Yes, yes, very, very true. Just imagine Rob doing a really, really offensive Jamaican accent <laughs> trying to sing this song, but also realizing as he's doing it that, like, this is not right. I have to stop this, this right now, but idea. there's still three minutes left in the song. Okay, well, shit. it's funny that you mentioned that because there seems to be, like, a proliferation of, you know, white suburban kids who have started reggae bands or dub or ska or whatever, which is fine. You can play whatever the hell you want, but they try they do the accent and i just don't understand it like you don't talk like that you don't sound like that why are you trying to sing like you are from jamaica i'd like to give a shout out to giant panda gorilla dub squad <laughs> who are a reggae band that i have come across over the years they're a bunch of white dudes and they sound great i just want to like lay it out there we don't give any shots out on this i'm not dissing them here's what i'm dissing I, I saw them once in San Francisco. I had a good time. No, they're great. They're great. And you sure? I understand. I understand. We all we all we all know what we're talking about, right? Like, like Sublime. That's further watered I, down. I don't think Bradley Knoll tried to cop that accent, though. I, I I think my problem is really just with trying to sound Jamaican when you're not. I just have a problem with that. Oh, Jamaican accents are a thing. It's not. It's not a like. Oh, it's just a slight variation on. No, it's a thing. It is its own really self-contained thing. I I remember I had a a friend in college, and she had her mom that was dating a Jamaican guy at the time, and the joke she always made was that Jamaicans talk about combing their hair, but they go to the hair port, um, which I always thought was very funny. But you can um do an a Jamaican impression kind of easily, like because it's so specific, but it's also you know kind of really offensive to do it well like it's not easy to actually yeah. pull off yeah it's probably, yeah like yeah. It's, actors don't fake jamaican it's also far enough reason. away from american english again when i was watching the bob marley documentary on netflix subtitles were definitely required i do like how in this song he says a, a it sounds like he says a hungry mob is a hangry mob <laughs> which, <laughs> it's like oh yeah just like creating these uh portmanteaus like yeah there there's a point on this record where i swear he says chumbawamba Oh. <laughs> Alan, using your discretion, feel free to cut the entire last three <laughs> <laughs> Might have to do some uh, some creative editing yes. here. Okay, so let's move on to the uh, the title track of this album. Of course, it's called Natty Dread. Bongo, bongo. 
and tried to find out if anybody had sampled this for a uh, another song, a hip-hop tune or a dance tune or something. That intro is super tight. I totally dig that. Uh, it's just a great horn great horn line. It's it's awesome. I, I, yeah, I dig this tune. It kind of gives me like an Amy, Amy Winehouse vibe. Yeah, maybe you know what? Maybe that's that's what uh that's what I was thinking about. It is kind of weird that it hasn't been used in a hit song though. I could definitely see that. It's an interesting point. I I, tra- I I like this song all right too. I, I see this as like Bob Marley's like come out music if he was a boxer or something. But um, for me, just because I'm interested in vocabulary, I, maybe it's just me. But I, for the longest time, did not understand the meaning of natty, and I, in fact, I thought it had the opposite meaning to what it means. And the fact that it means very well dressed and like precise, as opposed to unkempt. I oh, I didn't realize ah. that. I had no idea either. All right. This song, I'm sorry. This song's boring as hell. I really do not like, I, I don't like this song particularly. It's like, I don't hate it, but it's it's kind of low point on the album for me. The second verse, he's just talking about, I'm walking down this street, and then I'm walking down this street, and then I'm walking down this street, and yeah. then I'm walking down this street, and then I'm walking it's, down it's, this street. It's low content for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That'll teach you for listening to lyrics. I don't know why they named the album after it. Like maybe it was. I, I know that dreadlocks have a significance in Rastafarian culture and in the religion that I'm sure I have absolutely zero context about. Um, but it didn't. It didn't really do it for me. This one was I, when I heard it. I was like. I, I didn't even remember having heard it back in the day. I was like, "Oh, this must be a good. This must be a banger." It's the title track for the uh, for the album. No, not a banger. Certainly, I will say that I had very little idea what he was saying. So I, looking at the lyrics, they give the words as they appear in English. But then, Rob, to your point, not even needing what they're saying, but the translation of what that actually means, you know, in, in kind of Jamaican slang. Cause a lot of it, um, he says something at the end, end, I thought it was about like an egg 
And, uh, anyway, this is the I song where I thought he said Chumbawamba. Oh, yeah. Okay, he yeah, says yeah. Congo, yeah. Congo. He says Congo so like Bongo. Congo Bongo I. I, you know, honestly. Yeah, and then when I Google Congo Bongo, I found a Sega game from the eighties that looks like a Marvel Madness. <laughs> yeah. When I when I like read the lyrics and when I was listening to the lyrics, I was like, this is basically what like a racist 14 year old would have like made up for like, this is what Jamaican <laughs> say or, or something like that. I was going to say you, you reach a certain level of coolness where you can just make up words at yeah. any time. Yeah. And people just, accept them. People Nobody... just assume it's hip slang. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, totally. totally. I, yeah. I wonder if other Jamaicans were like, Bob, what the hell are you talking about? man? <laughs> like that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> you know, this is, you, you said level of coolness, Rob, and this almost came up earlier and you know, I just don't want this to slip away. Of you, you are by far the most traveled on the call right now. I feel like everywhere I have been in the world, ski mountains, beaches, South America, Central America, like everybody's playing Bob Marley. Is he more popular internationally than Definitely. the Beatles? I feel like Definitely. yes. The yeah. answer is 100% yes. Because he reaches yes. all those, the corners of the world that he reaches that everywhere. No, no one's heard yeah. of John it's, Lennon for sure. <laughs> Yeah, it's easy music to Why like do you think that is? in passing. It is yeah. easy music to like. Yeah, yeah. I thought a lot of like uh, Fela Kuti when I was listening to kind of going back to the last song, "The Belly Full." To me, that had like an Afrobeat kind of vibe, and I just think that's a very like universal. You know, it's it's just rhythm. It's everyone kind of understands that. You know, everyone can kind of like bob their head to it. I think, and and the message is straightforward: have fun and rise up against your oppressors. That's a pretty damn universal message. Well, unless you are the oppressor, in which case you listen to the blues because then you're like, oh, the tears of my oppressed. Yeah. When was the Fela Kuti assassination attempt? Do you think these are related? I thought the Fela Kuti assassination attempt was by the Nigerian government, right? I, I think the assassination attempt, it's, it seems like it's still a little bit of a mystery of exactly who tried to assassinate him or which government power might have been involved, but he was definitely dabbling in Jamaican politics at a time when things were at a fever pitch between two sides of a political spectrum, and they were both kind of trying to use him as a pawn. He was trying to stay neutral, and they were both trying to use him a little bit as a pawn in their game of that. It has something to do, and, and big surprise, the U.S. intelligence community was supporting one of those political candidates and not the other, so they might be wrapped up in it somehow. Rob, when you play the game of beach chairs, you win or you die, all right? <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's take a listen to our, our final track here that we're going to talk about, which is called Rebel Music, 3 O'Clock Roadblock.
has parentheses in it like that, do you say that as if it's like the formal part of the title? How does that yeah, work? Yeah. Mm, I usually skip it. You do? I say yes, it. Yeah. I skip it. But I would say this is the worst title on the record. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you a question. What's the name of the most uh, emotionally impactful talking head song? <laughs> Naive Melody. Yeah, but it's called This Must Be The Place, parentheses Naive Melody. So you clearly no, say. No, no, I, I thought that was the other way. I'm pretty sure it's the. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's the other way. Either way. No, because because in general, parentheticals are used to talk about what's actually in the song. I think they're like record company add-ons a lot of times to go. You have to put this in the byline so people know what the hell you're talking about. You can't just call this song naive it's the melody chorus or something. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. I want to link something that says you're absolutely fucking wrong. It's called this must be the place parentheses naive melody. <laughs> <laughs> If I open another tab, my computer's going to crash. I can't do it. Yeah, but still. <laughs> well, folks, if you subscribe to our Patreon, you'll get all this bonus content that... Oh, that's good content. You should definitely not edit that. <laughs> this was my, like, find, I guess, on the album. Because I know I'd heard this song before, but this was the one that... like I, I still think them Belly Full, But We Hungry is the best song on the album. But this was the one that I had not heard before and i'm definitely going to listen to again i mean just the fact that he's getting hassled on the road and he's got to he's got to throw out his his herb stock he's basically like uh, getting hassled for having weed while driving down the road i thought it was great and it really does speak to that sort of rebellious nature of like the you know i mean how how can you not have that hey mr cop stuck in your head I feel like that's what I'm going to say if I ever get hassled by the fuzz. I'm be like, hey, Mr. Cop, ain't got no birth certificate on me now. I, I like this one, too. It's probably number two track on the record for me as well. And I think a lot of the reason is, A, it has real content behind it. Like, he's really trying to say something. B, I think one of the reasons reggae ends up feeling very samey a lot of times is because those tropes that we mentioned about always hitting on the upbeat – people coast on those tropes and then don't do anything interesting rhythmically or melodically with it. So to me, this is a good example of taking some really simple, in quotes, simple components and sparse arrangements and doing something that's tonally differentiated. You know, they put a different effect on the guitar in this one. They use a harmonica. They, I don't know, just add some different rhythms and some different melodic elements that weren't present in the other songs. That that makes it more memorable to me. This one, it didn't feel overproduced to me, but there was just so much going on. So there was uh, an electric piano, a Hammond, the harmonica, a clav, the guitar, the backup vocals. I don't know if there's horns in it. It just felt like a lot. Not that it was bad, but it almost seemed a little jarring as to how much they threw into this pot. I'm not saying you have to always keep it simple, but it just... This, this one just stood out to me as there was a lot in there. I think it was arranged well, but it was just... A standout for that reason. Well, you got 10 guys in your band. You know, you really do. Yeah, all right. Yeah. <laughs> well, also, I kind of was going through it, the album on my guitar. I didn't go through every track, but it did seem like the vast majority of them were in a single key. I believe it's the key of B major. And this one went up a half step, and huh. it made me wonder if this was the only harmonica they could find. So, like, all right, we got to take it up. <laughs> hey, guys, I'm sorry. We got to transpose it. They, they literally went up a half a step, I believe, for this song. Yeah. Were you telling me they you just yeah. put a kick capo on the first? And <laughs> like, we, exactly. we have a C. Okay. Yeah, we got a harmonic in C. All right, there we go. <laughs> right. 
This song for me, I mean, similar to them Bellyful, like previous to this, Rob, you sort of alluded to like getting outside of the tropes. And I think both this and them Bellyful have these cool intros that are very unreggae. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. yeah, yeah. They're like you, you get ten seconds of not. Except for they, right? Before. They both do have the exact same drum fill for the beginning of the song. Oh, it yeah. is the exact same. Drum like, yeah, starting with the drum fill. If you just go through and scan one of these records and only play the first five seconds of each song, you'll kind of be astounded. <laughs> the other thing that really strikes me about that song, it happens a couple times on, on this record, but it happens on this song at fifteen seconds. These are just people tracking live to tape, right? Like that harmony is a big wall of people singing at the top of their range and they're all pitch perfect. There's no, it was just, just do it, you know, like do it again. And it's, it's overlooked how it's just not that easy to do this, especially cold, right? Like 13 seconds in, it just bang. They just say, yeah, all four of them, you know, and it's big. Wait, going back to the drum fill for one second and the what the genre sounds like, I always, for some reason, think of the song Mother and Child Reunion as being one of the songs that throws me off my game. We've recently been talking about Hurdle, which is like a Wordle app where it plays one second of a song and then three seconds of the front of a song. But in the context of listening to Bob Marley, now go listen to Mother and Child Reunion and tell me you might not be fooled and think it was actually a Bob Marley song. I would argue even after the singing starts. Guys, I just buzzed the first second of every song. That's fucked. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, Rob, are you telling me that uh, Paul Simon was stealing sound from black people even before Graceland came out? Is that what you're trying to apply here? That's so true. <laughs> Still a great song. And also Graceland's a great album. So, you know. It's like he knows one drum fill. And even on the song So Ja Say... It's like a drum machine that does the same drum <laughs> It's like they literally like, I don't know, I just dropped that one. It works great. I have actually thought about how hard it would be to be in a reggae band for that reason. Because if everything, I don't know, clearly they do it well. But in my, my brain would have a really hard time being like, okay, which one is this? Yeah. And, you know, five seconds in, I'm playing something different entirely. And I'm like, wait, but I thought, oh, fuck. Be, but, but on the other side, it'd be easy to do a medley. Yeah, well, good point. <laughs> one thing I want to talk about in this song, it's actually the reason I requested this song to be on the focus list. I was eternally delighted by his delivery of Roadblock and how he gets like more incredulous and or confused and or surprised every time he delivers roadblock. He's like, three o'clock, roadblock, roadblock, roadblock. Like, (laughs) I urge you to go back and listen to it with that sense of like, he's like even more like, what is this roadblock going on every time that he delivers that line? It's it's quite delightful. Just similarly, because they're of a pair, I want to similarly recommend another example of where a vocalist, each time their part comes around, 
gives it a new artistic rendering like a true artist should is the Sesame Street version of the 12 Days of Christmas, which culminates in Cookie Monster saying one delicious cookie at the end of every verse. And I'm telling you, he gives 12 distinct reads. <laughs> Rob, you don't have- why are you listening to <laughs> 12 Days of Christmas? Because he's a scholar and he cares about the, the craft and the art. Gentleman and a scholar. I get it. Yeah. Shit, I have kids and I don't listen to that shit. <laughs> Christmas episode. We'll do a super cut of Cookie Monster. Everybody remember that for the Christmas episode. I mean, it's got to go on the playlist now. If we're still right? doing this by Christmas. <laughs> it's going on the playlist. Yeah. No, it's just like the the way you framed that comment on was exactly what I remember thinking in my own head 20 years ago when I was listening to that or something. <laughs> I like 21 year old Rob is listening to that too. I think you might mean 32 years ago. Like, <laughs> well, that's a very natural segue into the moment of truth for this album. Let's go around the room and issue our final vote. Does this album belong on the list of albums you must hear before you die? Let's start with you, Phil. All right. So I'm going to start with an easy yes. This is an easy yes for me. This is a great record. Actually, I would go as far as to say I dislike reggae. But I like this record. And I like other Bob Marley records. I think as far as reggae goes, he really is the best. Now, I'd also like to add a note, which is um, if you would ever like to become Yoshi just for like 20 seconds, you smoke a lot of weed, like a whole bunch until you can barely turn on the record player or in this case, uh, you know, MP3 player. And then you're going to want to start Bob Marley's Bend Down Low because for the first 20 seconds, you will be transported into Super Mario World. And you you will feel very much like you're looking around, where's Mario, where is he? Maybe you want to eat an apple, I don't know. I don't know. But you can get to have that experience uh, if you just, you know, follow my simple instructions. <laughs> Sounds like a nice Tuesday night, as far as I'm concerned. Well, I, I no Tuesday night. No way. I got to do that shit first thing in the morning. My first thing in the morning. Way too high now. <laughs> shock the system. <laughs> Can we drop shock the monkey sound right there? Rob, what say you? Yeah, I'll go. I'm gonna go with yes as well. I think this is the best representation of an important artist, Bob Marley. I think this, this is the best entry point. The songs. There's some really good songs on here, and like I said, even the songs that are a little more in the vapid reggae category. This is the best version of that thing you're going to get. And I do buy that it's a template for a lot of what came after it. And I also buy that you shouldn't blame the fans for the original artist. So that's, that's definitely a play here. Don't. Yeah. As Alan said at the beginning. All right. Yes, Tom. I am, uh, you know, I'm also going to vote. Yes. I'm going to vote yes for two reasons. One reason is if you've only ever listened to Bob Marley's legend, you should listen to this because it will show you that there is a lot more to reggae than you had previously thought there was. And my second reason is if you've never listened to Bob Marley's legend, it means that you probably never listened to reggae at all. And then you should listen to this because this is the best version of reggae that you're going to get. Adam. Yeah, I, everything's been said. I'll echo all that. <laughs> it's potentially going to be a clean sweep. I was trying to think of a... Uh, devil's advocate argument but i got nothing so i'm gonna go with yes yeah i'll just double down here and say it's an easy yes for me if that wasn't obvious by this point look if you don't like reggae 
you're not going to like this. I think that's pretty clear. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't hear it. I, I do think Bob is on that very short list of your your Dylans, your Hendricks, your folks like that that are just table setters for an entire genre of music. So come on, it's Bob Marley. Y you got to listen to this. What are we doing here? Well, there you have it, folks. A clean sweep all around. Bob, you made the list. Congratulations. Excellent work. Well done. Well done, sir. Nice work, Bob. But the real question, dear listeners, is did we get it right? Did we get it wrong? What do you think? We'd love to hear from you. Hit us up at 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. That's 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. Now let's turn our sights to next week to find out what we're going to listen to. Tom, what do you got in store for us? You know, we're actually going to do something a little bit different. Uh, we are what? not going to bust out the Albinator for this week because we will be releasing our next episode on a very special day for America, July the 4th. And what day is that? What Sorry. better album? Are you listening to Kid Rock again? <laughs> exactly. Terrible. American badass. Uh, yeah. What better album to do on July 4th than the classic Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA, which has gotten a lot of play as being a very patriotic album. And I think we're going to find that that is a surface Wrong. level reading of it. Wrong. Wrong yeah, again. I could not agree more. Yeah. First, what is it? The first hit I took is when I hit the ground or something like that. Yeah. Dude, Dancing in the Dark has 436 million listens on Spotify. <laughs> oh my god! It's, it's a perfect I'm not pop song. Next week, that is it's a perfect pop song. I'll hear no. I'd like you. Oh, you want? Oh, oh, you better come. Later. Let's get into it, baby. Step in the arena. Rob's gonna come. Rob's coming hard next week. Already, shots. Fired. No, no. I, I'm I'm excited to get into this. I think Bruce Springsteen is a an important voice in music, certainly. So he's got a lot of, in my opinion, he's got a lot of great material. He's been around for a long time. And this is far and away his most successful work. So excited to dive in. Adam, I expect from you, Adam, and maybe from you too, Phil, a, an entire like 25-minute digression on the synthesizer sounds that were used on this album. Oh, I really want to like, oh, Yeah, thank you. I'll dig into that. I already have so much to say. <laughs> Well then, all right. Next two-hour episode. All right. Fuck right. it. Let's just record it now. All right, go. Rob, just start talking. All right. Well, with that, I am Alan. I am Phil. I'm Rob. I am Tom. And I'm Adam. Boosh. <laughs>